Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> wow. You dudes really think you do a lot, don't you? Like, wow, you've been celebrating moms for like four hours already, and now you're ready to take the credit. All right. Well, thank you, men, for all you do on Mother's Day. We just want to appreciate you guys and your sacrifice. No, I don't even know. Wow. Uh, yeah, actually, it's funny. Um, this morning I woke up and uh, just realized how much I appreciate my wife, the mother of my kids. Uh, I get up and she's not laying next to me. And I was like, all right. I, you know, so I walked down the hall and she's curled up in the crib with my daughter, uh, sleeping with her. And then I'm sneaking out of the house trying to get, I'm leaving pretty early. And uh, so I don't have time to like make her breakfast in the crib and all that kind of stuff that you normally do for your wife. And, uh, and I kind of bang one of the cabinets shut, you know, and so then my two-year-old is wide awake, ready to play. And, and, and so like I microwave some, uh, some pancakes and then like set them on the table and run out the front door. And uh, just realizing that probably for a lot of you moms, that's just normal life, right? And that's the sacrifice that you make over and over again for your kids. And all the, the, the ladies in here who have contributed to just the growth and the development of the kids of this church. And uh, we just want to thank you and we want to honor you today. And thank you for just being awesome moms and, and loving uh, your kids. So happy Mother's Day. Ah, uh, yeah. Thank you. So this morning, we are going to continue on our series in the book of Ephesians. And uh, as we get to this chapter, chapter two, it's, I think it's maybe the most beautiful part of Ephesians, maybe one of the most beautiful uh, pieces of the entire Bible. In fact, some people have said Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is kind of like a summary of the entire book of Romans. So if you don't have time to read Romans, just read these 10 verses and you got it, right? Um, and in this passage, I think we see just the beauty of God's grace, the beauty of what he has done for us. So this morning, there's not a whole lot of to-dos in this passage. So if you got a lot of to-dos on your list, take a deep breath and know this, that this isn't a time that you got to check down a bunch of things that you got to do to be a good Christian. Instead, the point I think of this passage is to come to a place of being in awe of who God is of worshiping him for his greatness and his grace and his love, and then being compelled to action as a result of that. And we're gonna to try to capture that a little bit this morning. We're gonna do it slightly different. We're gonna kind of mix in worship and teaching um, throughout the, the sermon portion. Uh, we're gonna read the scripture three different times. So if you wanna open your Bible to Ephesians chapter two, keep your finger in there. You might not be able to read it while we're reading it because we're gonna bring the lights down but we just encourage you to just listen, to absorb the words of it. We're going to have some images on the screen. The first time we read it, we're really going to be focused on the brokenness of humanity. In fact, the deadness of humanity and our depravity, our brokenness. The second time we read it, we're going to really be focusing on the awesome grace of God and what he has done for us. And then the last time we read it, we're going to be just called to a response. What does it mean to be his workmanship created for these good works? So as we, we go into the passage, just uh, set your mind, really focus on the words of this passage together.
and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and whereby the nature are children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Isn't that the truth of that passage when we read it? This realization that, God, we need you. We are broken. We are lost. In fact, I think one of the things that really stood out to me as I was studying this this week is that it doesn't have a very high view of humanity, right? It, it doesn't prop us up and talk about how great humans are. In fact, it says the exact opposite. It says that, that we were dead, right? And the first point here that, that we got is that humanity is deader than we think, okay? That humanity is more dead, more lost than we, we think. The idea of dead is a pretty, like, definite um, concept, isn't it? It's this statement that, that's very, it's terminal. It's not, it's not that Paul came up and said, you know, you are really sick, or you are really corrupt, or you are really lost. All these things that, that kind of seems like you could maybe revive yourself. Instead, he says, you are dead in your transgressions and sin. When I sent this uh, points out to the the administrative people, the people who know more about grammar than I do, they kicked it back to me and they were like, you can't say deader than you think. That's not a real word. And I was like, no, it showed up in my spell check. It's cool, trust me. And, uh, and they were like, no, you have to say more dead. And it's like, well, that doesn't work either. You can't be more dead. You can't be deader. They're not real concepts, right? Because you're either dead or you're alive. There's not like more dead. It's not a varying degree of deadness. But, and I think that's the point I'm trying to get across is that you were dead in your sins. You were lost. You were gone. You could not recover. There was no way you were going to revive some little bit of life in you and spring it back to full life. Right? Some of you might remember the classic American movie of Princess Bride. Right? Uh, there's that scene where Wesley, the main character, dies. And his friends take him to Miracle Max. And they kind of, they roll him in there to Miracle Max. And, and Miracle Max is like, oh, I've got good news for you. Your friend is not all the way dead. He's only partly dead, right? And partly dead means he's sort of, or kind of, what? Slightly alive. Thank you. This is why I don't quote movies very often, because I always get them right, wrong. He's slightly alive. And then Miracle Max uses that one little bit of life to kind of restore him back to life. But the picture that Paul is painting here 
of our nature, of our brokenness, of our lostness. It's not that, that we have this little sliver of divine within us, that if we just find that piece of divine, that we can restore ourselves, that we can make ourselves pure and whole again. He's saying that you were dead, you were gone. Now, obviously, Paul is not talking about physical death, right? We're all here, we're breathing, we're talking. You're, you're alive here. But at the core, at our identity, we're dead. We're separated from God from the very source of life himself. And that there is no hope for restoration of relationship with God based on our own strength, based on the things that we do. Now, that's not to say that there's not beauty and goodness in people, right? Obviously, there are. Even the most vile and terrible of people we can imagine probably still have aspects of good in their life. Like, I can imagine Hitler's mom thought Hitler was a really nice young boy, right? Oh, little Adolfo, he's so sweet. He always brings me breakfast in bed on Mother's Day or whatever. You know, like, Idi Amin, as terrible as a man as he was, he probably had friends that really thought he was a great guy. And the reality of it is we all have some goodness in us, but the question is not, can dead people do good things? The question is, can those good things bring them back to life? Can those good things give them salvation? Can those good things restore them into relationship with God? And the answer that, that, that um, Paul is getting at here is it can't. That we can't, no matter how many good things we do, we are still lost and gone and dead. He goes through this whole list of things about how broken we were, right? He says that you have committed both trespasses and sin. He used these two words really to get at the fact that it's not only the things that you do intentionally that are evil, even the things that you unintentionally do end up leading to sin and evilness, right? He says that, that you walked in the ways of the world, that you've just gone around and just living in this world, you have kind of the sin, the brokenness all around us has rubbed off on you. And he goes on even further, not only do we walk around in the things of the world, but we actually followed the course of this world. This idea that it's not that you just were sort of influenced by the bad things of this world, that you've jumped in, that you've experienced them and you like them. That there is some evilness in this world that connects with you deeply, that you enjoy. And I think we can all in our hearts realize that that's true. There are things that I do that I know that are wrong, that are broken, and yet I still do them. I follow with those. But he doesn't just leave it at there. He says that you followed the prince of the air. He's talking about Satan. He says you've joined the rebellion against God. You are hateful against God. You chose the exact opposite of who he was, and you chose to follow Satan instead of him. You are like evil, rebellious children that are disobedient, that are walking around doing whatever brings them pleasure. As I was thinking of this concept, I was thinking of how different this is than, than really my view of humanity, right? Most of the time, I think when I look out at humanity, I, I think I see the brokenness, but I like to kind of feel like we're all pretty good people, right? That there's this kind of goodness with all of us. Yet I think what he's saying is right under the surface of that goodness, is really selfish brokenness. Another 80s movie you might remember are the Mad Max movies. You guys remember those movies? And Mad Max is in this not-so-distant future where there's been some catastrophes, and as a result, everybody is just selfish and evil and just trying to take care of their own, right? And they're just kind of, it's this kind of ugly picture of humanity. And I think the picture that Paul is getting at here is more like that image of humanity 
than the image that I normally think of ourselves as, right? It's this image of being depraved. That's this kind of theological word to say that we are totally broken from deep within, that we are dead, that I am not a good person, that I am lost, I'm dead. And I think the passage goes even further than that. It's this reminder that it's our fault, right? That there's nobody else to blame. It's not like I'm a, a bad person because somebody made me do bad things. As Christians, sometimes I think we like to give the devil more credit than he's due, right? We like to kind of say, well, the devil made me do it. Well, it's Satan's fault I do bad stuff because he's the big tempter. How could I possibly overcome these temptations? But the reality here is it's saying that you chose to follow the prince of the air. That Satan didn't cause you to sin. You did that one all on your own. And you joined the rebellion over and over again. That at our core... It's our fault. It's our guilt. And this kind of made me kind of think about uh, my own passions and desires, these, these interests that I have deep in my kind of soul. I saw this meme on Facebook this uh, last week, and somebody posted it. Said, um, it said, follow your passions, be good. And it was this idea that if we just follow our passions, if we find this peace deep inside of us and we just do that, that that'll lead us to living a good and moral lifestyle. And I kind of question that. I don't think that's true for myself. I think deep in me, if I'm truly as corrupt and dead as this passage says I am, then following my passions is probably not the way I want to go because that'll lead me to more dead actions. Paul here, he says that as a result of this, that we are children of wrath. That God's wrath has been turned against us. And that's an ugly concept for me. I don't, I don't like the idea of wrath. And I think part of the reason I don't like the idea of wrath is because all the wrath I've experienced is pretty selfish, right? When I have wrath towards my kids, it's not based on some place of purity and righteousness and justice. When I have wrath towards my kids, it's because they broke something that was mine or they made a mess that I now have to clean up or they woke me up too early and ah, I just I respond in this selfish place of wrath. And sometimes I think I put that kind of view on God, that God has this selfish sense of wrath, but it's quite the opposite, that God in his perfectness, in his justice, in his wholeness of who he was, looks down at our rebellious nature, our evilness, and has no choice but to respond in wrath because that is who he is. I heard this interview a couple weeks ago on NPR, and it was uh, this old retired prison warden. And it really struck me. I was, he was kind of this old Southern dude, very like kind of a, your stereotypical prison guard, right? Just kind of no, no nonsense about him. And he was talking about some of the executions that he had to oversee as a prison warden and how it was his job. And he talked about this one particular individual who had admitted to all of his crimes. There was, the guy was clearly guilty. He had did it, and he was sentenced to execution. And the prison warden talked about how he became friends with this guy over this time. And they were using the gas chamber in this state in this particular time. And And the prison warden talks about just remembering looking through the glass and actually screaming at the glass, screaming at this guy as he watched the man be executed, knowing that that's what he had to do for his job and not being able to do anything about it. And I'm just so glad that that's not the picture we have of God, that God is not bound 
by these things that he found a way that he, while we deserve punishment, while we deserved the full wrath of God, that God offered us his son to take the wrath for us. That he's not just stuck standing on the other side of a glass with his hands tied, that he intervened in our story and he brought us salvation, that he brought us hope, that he brought us grace. And as we read this passage again, I just encourage you to focus on that concept of grace, that beautiful forgiveness that while we deserve wrath, we've got so much more. So let's, let's read it together. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming age, he might show the immeasurable richness of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As we read through it this time, did the word grace pop out to you? Because it did to me just over and over that while we were dead, God offers us grace. And the point we have here is that God's grace makes dead people live. And that's what I just see over and over, that, that while we were hateful and rebellious and disobedient children, while every part of our lives was in rebellion to God, that God reached down in great love and kindness and offered us life when we deserved death. He offered us forgiveness when we deserved condemnation. He gave us relationship with him when we deserved to be cut off. He gave us a seat next to him when we didn't deserve to be anywhere near him. And it's because of this amazing grace that it says that we are saved. I love it. It's past tense. You have been saved. See, the, the beauty of God's grace is it's already happened, that God has done that for us, that if we are a follower of Jesus, that you have been saved and you have a new life that starts now, that started the day that you received him, that you are a new creation. Sometimes as Christians, when we are telling uh, non-Christians about, about Jesus, about the gospel, we've been trained uh, to say this, if you were to die tonight, where would you go, right? Maybe some of you have heard that kind of question or been trained in that. And as I was reading this, I was struck by, I don't think that's the right question. I think maybe the right question is, if you were to live tonight, would you live alive in relationship with God? If you were to live the next 50 years, would you get to live that experiencing the grace of God? Why wait? Why wait until our deathbed? We get to experience that now because God has given us grace that you have been saved through the grace of God. And all this came when we were hostile towards God. That's, a, that's an amazing concept. 
I, uh, when we first got our dog, she's a pit bull and we got her off of Craigslist, you know, off like the free section on Craigslist. So we didn't know exactly what to expect. And so the first couple of times we took her out, we put like a muzzle on her just to make sure, make sure she was okay. And she hated that thing. And especially around other dogs. And I remember we were at like the pet store and this giant Great Dane came up to her. And this thing was massive, like twice my dog size. And my dog was growling. She was so hostile towards this Great Dane. She just wanted to tear this Great Dane apart. And this Great Dane, like, just looked down at her super calm and stuck out its massive tongue that was like literally as wide as, as Roxy, my dog's head, and just like gently licks her muzzle. Like, oh, I'm sorry you have to wear that, you know? And, and I think in some ways that's, that's kind of how God treats me, that as I'm looking at God going, God, I can do this on my own. God, I can save myself. God, I don't need you. God, I got this. God goes, no, you don't. I am so much bigger than you are. I am so much greater than you are. And I am giving you grace, not of your own work, not of anything you have done, but as a free gift of mine. And I think that's, that's amazing. That's a beautiful picture to, to just think about. It's this awesome concept of grace that, that we couldn't possibly deserve, we couldn't possibly understand. This word grace is, is hard for me sometimes to even get my mind around, right? I think it's hard for all of us to get our mind around. I know like the textbook answer that it's the unmerited favor of God, but to understand what that really means is hard. And as I was reading through this passage, I came, I just was struck by the word kindness, right? It says that in the coming age that he might show his immeasurable richness of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's a a weird word to think about in relationship to God for me. Like when I think of kindness, I think of like my grandma, you know, like I don't think of God as being kind, Grace seems like a better word for him, you know? But there's this aspect of his grace that is exhibited to us in kindness, this love and affection. It's not just some simplistic kindness. It's this super kindness, this this overwhelming, unimaginable sense of grace and kindness that he has given to us. And it says that he's given it to us without measure, that there's no way for me to calculate this, that there's, there's no form of measurement that I can total up. That Okay, God loves you 452 milliliters, or God loves you 10 miles, right? That it's unmeasurable. It's beyond my imagination. We, uh, my wife and I have been watching this, this TV show. And in this TV show, there's this little girl who's been orphaned. And she's living in a, uh, like a boarding school kind of thing. And the principal has been trying to, to help this little girl kind of come to grips with her parents' death. And so he sits her down, and she goes, yeah, I really want to talk to my mom and dad. And he says, well, they're a long ways away. They're in heaven. She's like, well, how long, how far away is that? He's like, well, it's like across an ocean. It's that far away. It's just trying to kind of bring it down into something that a five-year-old girl could understand. So this little girl leaves there, and she runs into the kitchen, and she steals a glass bottle, and she, she writes a note to her parents, and she corks the bottle. And she runs out back to, like, a pond that's probably about the size of this room, just a little frog pond. And she throws this bottle out into the pond. And, and I think that's kind of like my understanding of God's grace, is that what I can see, what I can measure, what I can get my mind around is really just a pond, but it's so much greater than that. 
It's beyond what I could even imagine. It's beyond what we could collectively come together and we could list out all the ways that God has shown us grace. And even that is just part of the pond. It's not the full picture of God's grace. It's overwhelming without limitation. And we see that in part, I think, by just all the different ways that God gives us grace. In verse 6 here, I think it's really interesting. It says that, uh, well, starting in verse 5, it says, By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, last week in chapter 1, uh, Paul tells us that, that God has raised Jesus up next to him and given him authority over all things. And now here, just a couple of verses later, he says that through grace we have been saved and that we have been given a place, a seat with God. Now that to me is, is crazy. I, I've forgiven people in my life, right? I've forgiven people lots of times. But usually when I forgive somebody, I, I'm a little bit cautious of how much I want to like involve them in my life after that, right? I still kind of hold a little bit of that back on them. I can't imagine God, while we were hostile to him, while we were enemies with him, he's forgiven us, he saved us and says, come here, I've saved you a seat next to us to spend eternity with us up in heaven, experiencing all this privilege that I can give to you. Come here. And he offers this to us while we were still sinners. And all of this is not just for our own benefit. It's not just because God wanted us to feel good about life. All of this was because of his own glory that he wanted to show to the coming ages, it says, the immeasurable richness of his grace. That he wanted people to know that all of heaven, all of earth will realize how great and gracious our God is by the way that he's treated us. And that way, sometimes I think we're a little bit like trophies, right? If you went to somebody's house and they had a nice big trophy in their house, you probably wouldn't go and admire the workmanship of that trophy, right? You probably wouldn't be like, wow, that is a super cool trophy. You'd probably ask the question of, how did you get that trophy? What did you do to deserve that trophy? And I think that's kind of what we are. We are God's trophies that when people see us and they say, why would God take such a broken person like you, Nate, and make him a follower of you? Then that puts the focus on who God is. And I just become a tool in that process. And he has shown his great grace through us, through showing us love. And throughout eternity, for the coming ages, the world will see that God is gracious because of the way he's treated his church, his people. At this point in uh, the message, I want to give us just a time to reflect on this. As I said earlier, this is not um, just a list of to-dos, but we want to come to a place of amazement, being overwhelmed by God, saying, God, I do not deserve your grace. God, thank you for the great love that you've shown me. So we're going to sing a couple of songs, and then I'm going to come back up, and I'm going to kind of conclude the message. And as we sing these songs, um, maybe just take a moment to just, maybe uh, it's even reading back through the verses in this passage. Maybe it's taking some time to say, God, I'm broken. I need you. Maybe you're here today, and you've never experienced this grace. You're just here because your mom made you come on Mother's Day or, or whatever your reason is. But you're, you're drawn to this. I encourage you to, to, to spend some time with God.
to wrestle with these concepts. If you want, you can come forward. You can, you can come pray up front. You can stay in your seats. You can stand up, sit down. But let's just take this time to just reflect and be overwhelmed and amazed by God's grace. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What an amazing concept that, that we are his workmanship, that God created us that his, in his beautiful grace that he created us to do good works, good works that we didn't have to come up with ourselves, that, that he set out from us from the beginning of time. And the point that we have down here for this is if this is true, then we need to quit bragging and start living, right? That this was not something that we earned. It's not something we deserved. It's not something that we've done, that all of my good works, the things I do, the ministries I'm involved in, maybe the nice things I've done for people, None of that is because I'm such a great person. All of that is because God has created me and has set this before me so that I might walk in these things, right? But sometimes I think we can just get arrogant. We like to brag about these things. I remember when I was in grade school, and you probably went to grade school with a kid just like this. There was that kid that had all the nicest stuff. You know what I mean? That always had the nicest clothes, always had the nicest toys, and being a mature elementary school kid. I did what all kids do, and I mock him and tear him down, right? I'm like, oh, you're so spoiled. Your parents just buy you everything. And this kid would always respond, oh, no, no, I bought this with my own money. You're like, you're eight years old. You don't have money, right? Like, just because your grandma gives you $100 for Christmas doesn't mean you have money, right? And sometimes we're like that spoiled little eight-year-old that we're like, look at all the good things I've done. Look at who I am. Aren't I special? 
And God, I think, is saying, you don't have that. I gave that to you. If you're going to brag, brag about me. Brag about what I have done for you. Talk about who I am and not who you are. And I think part of living this reality is realizing that it's not our work because that actually keeps us from experiencing the fullness of this life God has called us to. Instead, it's us learning to experience and love and be just overjoyed with this life we get to live. That concept comes, I think, in this word grace, right? It says by grace, I mean, I'm sorry, in faith. The, the passage says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, faith doesn't save us. It's not like God's up in heaven going, okay, when your faith meter gets above this point, then boom, you're saved. That's not how it works. This passage has already been very clear that it is by grace that you've been saved. There's nothing that you can do to earn the favor of God, yet God gave it to you. And now we get to experience it through faith. That's our response to God is our faith. That when we see all that God has done for us, when we go, God, I deserve punishment. God, I deserve your wrath. Yet you gave me grace, that you gave me salvation, that you gave me a place next to you. So I will follow you in faith. I will put my trust in you. I will give you my life. I will submit myself to you. I will walk in obedience to you. I will follow you. And this faith, I think, becomes the groundwork, the, the, the ground foundation for all of our good works. Not good works that we've mustered up ourselves, but those that God has given us to that we walk in through faith. And the rest of the book of Ephesians, it goes on to talk about these things. It talks about the unity that we're supposed to be experienced as a church, the way we're supposed to love each other, the way we should be praying for each other, the way families should treat each other. These are good works. They're important, but we got to get them in the right perspective. All these good works, all these things we do, it, they don't pile up to earn us salvation but there is a result of our salvation. That we say, because God has given me such grace, I will turn and I will follow him with my life. And what I think is so awesome about that is this becomes God's plan for our life, not our own. We begin to seek the passions and the plan of God, not our own passions. Because we learned earlier in this passage, or reminded of earlier, that, that our desires, the way that seems right to us is broken. It's wrong. Yet God, from the beginning of time, has been crafting this life for us to live, this way to follow him in obedience, these good works that he has set up for us. And yet I think we get this so backwards as our culture, right? We want to put the focus on us. Do what makes you happy. Do what makes you feel right. And God's saying, no, do what, do what I'm telling you is right. Doing what I, do what I've set up for you. We do that by searching him, by seeking his word, by prayer, by submitting ourselves to him, by obedience, by faith, we come to him. And I think this becomes this massive paradigm shift in our life because it puts our identity as being a child of God who's been given grace. And our works come as a result of that. And that's different than I think most of us think of works. Most of the time I think of kind of my identity as the things I do, right? What I do for a living, what kind of actions, the things I'm involved in, maybe the ministries I do. And God's saying, no, no, no. Your identity is in me, that you have been given grace. Now, as a result of that, do these works. Again, this is past tense. You have been saved. You are a child of God. You have been given this grace. Now we get to experience this life. And sometimes I think this is maybe kind of like, if you can imagine 
um, you bought somebody a ticket to Disneyland, right? And you give them this ticket to Disneyland, and they walk in Disneyland, and they just kind of look at all the different rides and the attractions. And about half a day goes by, and they're still just standing there in the middle just looking around, right? You'd probably come up to them at some point and go, go experience Disneyland. Go ride the rides. Go do the attractions. That's why we're here. That's, that's what you get to do. And in the same way, I think that's walking in faith, being obedient, is it's experiencing the life that God has saved us for. It's experiencing the very grace of God that we weren't just saved so that someday we could go to heaven. We were saved so that today we can walk in the good works that Christ has laid out for us from the beginning of time, that we could experience the joy and the hope and the meaning of our salvation. So this morning, as we kind of wrap up this service, we're going to have some more time of worship and reflection. And I want us, again, not to come up with a list of things that we need to do. The point of this passage is not to write down 10 good works that you now need to accomplish. I think the point is to be overwhelmed by the grace of God, to come to a place of worship him, and to commit our faith to him, saying, what next, God? I will follow you. And if you're here today and You've never made that step. You've never put your faith in Jesus. This passage teaches us how simple it is. It's not about us. It starts with just admitting that we're sinful, admitting that we're dead, that there's nothing we can do to earn the favor of God. It's about believing that he has given us this grace, that he's bringing us from death to life. It's confessing our faith and our hope and our sins to him. And in that, he promises us that when we do that, that you have been saved, that you have been given this new life. So as we pray, I encourage you to, to pray that prayer if you've never done it, to admit your brokenness and say, God, I need life. And you know what? For the, some of us who have said that prayer maybe a dozen times, maybe hundreds of times over the course of our life, I think it's still worth coming to God and saying, God, I need you. I'm broken. And to pray that prayer again and again. Let's pray, and the band will come up and we'll continue. God, I need your grace. I I can do nothing without it. Everything I do is, um, is worthless without your hand being in it. So God, I praise you. I thank you. I'm overwhelmed by you. As we study this passage, even here again today, just reminded of all the things that you've given me, the great benefit to be called your child. Thank you for that. Thank you just for the overwhelming love and kindness that you've given to me, that you've given to us as a church. I pray that we follow you, that we we walk in faith, experiencing the fullness of this life you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Bridges Community Church Sermon Podcast. Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. For more information on Bridges Community Church, please check out our website at www.bridgescc.org.